This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Extra ready. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I'm here with the returning champion, Salem Straw. But before we get into it, I got to take care of a little business. I want to welcome aboard a new sponsor, Axwax. I already know about Axwax. We know about Axwax. Axwax is all in here. Axwax has been here with me since day one. Axwax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your handles, for your hammers. You know what to do. You get yourself some Axwax and put it on that wood, put it on the steel, put it on your Damascus, keep it clean, keep it nice, and then the fact that it doesn't have anything in it that's icky. So if you're making culinary stuff, or stuff that you get on your hands, it's nice to know that you have something that will be food safe. And if you go to axwax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Now, if you're in the UK, you can go to UK Knife Maker Supplies. That's Toby uh, Toby Morell's joint. And do me a favor, get something more than just the Axwax from him, because he is taking Full Blast 10 for 10% off. If you're in Australia, nordicedge.com.au, those guys are taking Full Blast 10. And if you're in the EU, Keith Colby is taking it at knifematerial.at. He's taking Full Blast 10, too, for, the, for, for uh, Axwax. So get yourself some Axwax. It's so inexpensive, and for the 10% off, you might as well get a couple pucks. It's definitely worth it. And P.S., their hoodies are awesome. They sent me one of their hoodies. Their hoodies are really, really nice. So go get yourself some Axwax. The next thing is... Your website, guys. I really want you to reconsider your website because you need to optimize your time. You just don't have the time to be going through the DMs and trying to deal with people and you know, seeing, you know, answering a question that could have been answered on your website. But you already have a website. And <clears throat> what you can get is you can get uh, Andreas Kalani can be a consultant. If you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, he will... Look at your look at what you need and then fix what you need. So if you he'll build your website or he'll fix your existing website or he'll make your logo redesign or he'll fix your graphics, he will make it easier for you to do your work and he's going to make it easier for you to update it as well. The great thing about what he's doing is if you use that, if you use uh, um, akinteractive.com slash full blast, you're going to get 10% off your your whatever services he provides and it's definitely worth it he's a knife maker making websites for knife makers or or diyers or if you're a maker in general i know he's done a lot of nice things for a lot of people so go get yourself a new website or fix your website now back to what i was originally saying well i want to welcome someone aboard i want to welcome a new sponsor on board total boat total boat is an amazing company and then they make they're known for making stuff for boats. So they make adhesives, paints, primers, and polishing compounds. And I just wanted to get us familiar with Total Boat because we're going to be talking about Total Boat a lot lately. So on their website, they say, for, boat, for boaters and DIYers, we understand your, uh, you need projects to go smoothly. That's why we're constantly finding ways to make original products better, easier to use, more sustainable, and less expensive. We're even tinkering with the packaging from time to time to make them more user-friendly. Our real-world know-how is what separates us from giant chemical conglomerates and sets our staff apart. Now, this is interesting because I know that Total Boat works with a lot of friends of the show. Actually, all the friends of the show. Uh, Jimmy DeResta, Keith Decent, Derek from Malden, Keith Johnson, even Keith Mitchell. All the Keiths. They're all using Total Boat. And it's great stuff. And I actually wanted to and let a lot of you knife makers know that they do make really great epoxies. 
I've been using lately, I use their Total Boat High Performance two-part epoxy for uh, laminating scales together. And it's really, really intuitive. And when they're talking about the packaging, it, the pump system is really great because, you know, a lot of times you can get one of these big sets of epoxy and then what will happen is you do a couple pumps and if you're all of a sudden you got a quarter cup of epoxy and you're like, well, I only wanted to do enough for one knife. There are stuff you can do one set of pumps and it'll be for one knife, which is kind of nice. It's a, it's a very, they're very smart in regards to how they use it. I also used the UV Cure Clear Resin. It's a resin that is activated by UV light. That stuff's pretty sweet for, I used it for filling in some cracks and some kind of filling up some holes and I really like that stuff. And then the last thing I said, used was they have this thick set casting epoxy. The, um, you know, you see a lot of guys making like poured tables and poured stuff and river tables and all that stuff. Well, using that, I used some of that uh, thick set casting epoxy for a little box I made. I, I put a, I put a, a bottle opener uh, progression in there. And then I filled it up with the uh, the thick set epoxy, and it really really cool stuff. So, thank you Total Boat for getting involved with the show. We're gonna be, you know, I'll be hearing a little bit more about that, and hopefully we're gonna get some promo codes in there so we can we can uh, we can be optimizing our listeners and Total Boat. And in the meantime, do me a favor, go shoot a message to Total Boat saying thanks for sponsoring the podcast. These are these are small, these are great people who are working with you know, lots of small guys and they're going to be working with us. So we appreciate you total boat. Thank you. Total boat. And as Keith Johnson says, total boat, baby. All right. Total boat, baby. Now. All right. We're back. We're back. I am. I am so thrilled. My next guest sent me a message saying, I can't wait to come back on the podcast. I want to come back on Salem Straub is on most knife makers. A Mal Rushmore of American knife makers. There's no question. He's a he's he's a he's an incredibly great guy. Oh, we gotta even talk about this. We gotta talk about this Center for Mental Arts. We'll do that in a bit. So, <sighs> sorry guys. So uh, Salem Straub is one of the great knife makers, American knife makers. He makes beautiful beautiful chef knives. He works a lot with Mosaic Pattern Damascus, and he's a Forge and Fire champion. And he's one of the guys that you look up to. And I'm just grateful to have you here. Salem, what's going on? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show again. It's a real honor. Uh, love what you've been doing and uh, always have fun, you know, working in the shop and listening to whatever guests you, you got on. Um, yeah, it's it's been a hard winter. <laughs> we'll get yeah, into that. But uh, life goes on. And uh, what have you been up to? How you been? I've been pretty good. Actually, I'm actually, you know, I forgot to talk about the fact that you and I are both, I mean, we're going to be both being instructors. This is going to be your second round of being an instructor at the Center for Metal Arts in Johnstown, PA. Yes, sir. And I'm going to be teaching um, I've a class at the end of March at uh, the Center for Metal Arts. I'm, I'm very excited about that. So uh, I think you I think you even might have some slots available if you wanted to take a really heavy duty class with one of the best knife makers around, but ladesmiths around. Salem's class, the Center for Mental Arts, is definitely worth it. So, yeah. Um, well, obviously, CMA is an amazing facility. I mean, beside the history, the guys are great. The school itself is, I mean, it's impressive. Let's face it. It's a big space, lots of machines, um, you know, forges down each side of the room. It's, it's an inspiring environment. Um, last year, that was my first um, instance of teaching there. And so I went in just, you know, new space, haven't taught there before, not really knowing what to expect. And I was pleasantly surprised by the way everything actually worked out. Um, 
I think there was there were seven students in class for my workshop last year, and uh, you know varying varying levels of skill. Of course, you always get that, uh, but everyone actually did a great job, and um, like everyone turned out good finished work. So I was super stoked on that, and actually returning this year now I have you know taken taken notes from last year, kind of how to develop my teaching method and, and the aims of the workshop a little bit better given exactly what the space has. So right. it's optimized at this point. And um, I think that while the first class was good, those of you that have, have waited to come do it until the second time I'm coming to teach there, um, it's going to be even better. So to everyone that's signed up, thanks for doing so. And as Jeff says, there may be a slot or two left. I haven't checked, but uh, if you're interested, please do go check it out at the CMA website under, uh, I think, the Education tab and Extended Workshops. I One of the things that Pat, and I've had Pat on here a couple times, I am amazed at the level of the broad range of classes that they're teaching and the level of instructors. Like I make the joke, the, the joke I like to make, which I'm still, I, I still make it is there's the best of the best. And then there's me, the worst of the best. And it's like, it's a, it's a group of, I mean, it's a Peter Ross and Nick Anger and you and that, uh, that Nathan uh, was it Nathan Weiss, Nathaniel Weiss is doing yeah. the, the slingshot class. And the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Pat's got a lot of his old guys coming in. I know, uh, I think, uh, Hayward's coming in and all these guys, all it, he, Seth Gould, I think is coming. I'm not hundred percent sure about Seth Gould, but it's like that level of that just a, a monstrous level of, I mean, heavy hit a murderer's row of like the of <laughs> metal workers in the, in the United States. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty inspiring to be part of like, I, I love a lot of those guys work, uh, like Peter Braspenix, he's oh. taught there. I don't know if he's coming back, but he's he's taught there for sure. And like, I love that dude's work. Um, just as, as far as joinery and and kind of like, I mean, it's the avant garde, right? You got old guy, older guys like Peter Ross who are, are standards and and no names, but then you have the the new killers like you know Nick Anger coming in, who are very much kind of at the forefront of what they're doing, and it's it's just super cool to be involved with. It is. It's it's a little bit overwhelming. I mean, the funny thing is, is I part of me thinks I've talked my way into it because, you know, I used to work there. You know, I'm like, I'm the only carryover from the original Center for Metal Arts crew, which is like, I'm taking that as like a compliment too. And and a lot of it is, a lot of the interesting thing is, especially talking to Pat, is he doesn't take this, this is, a, this when I had this, when we were submitting for, for classes, he really talked to me. I mean, he knows me and he like interviewed me and we talked about philosophy and we talked about teaching styles and what your interests are. And he's very, very considerate in regards to, you know, who comes down there and what's been done and what's been said. And I'm lucky. I, I I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm lucky that I like, you know, have some philosophy behind, you know, the way I teach. And, and, uh, what I'm interested in with you is, do you enjoy teaching? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, obviously everyone's motivations for things are, are complex, but, uh, yeah. I mean, when I think about it, I can, I can identify different reasons I enjoy teaching. I mean, there's a certain prestige to teaching, you know, like to, to being a known educator. It kind of gets your name out there in a different way. And I do like that. But I mean, aside from matters of the ego, I mean, I just find when, like when I am teaching in the moment and I'm noticing what I'm doing, um, 
I mean, I'll often notice like, hey, I'm really enjoying myself right now. The it's it's kind of like it's it's a performative thing in a way. You come and and these people have signed on to have you you teach them what you know about a given subject. And so you you adopt the role of a teacher and and if you know your subject well, it's a very enjoyable feeling to be kind of like to kind of have this knowledge flow through you and and to feel like you're articulating it well, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And uh it, let's face it like knife making is a challenging thing to do especially to to do it well and teaching knife making is even more challenging i mean just because you're a good knife maker or whatever it is that you do you can't take it for granted that you're going to be a good teacher of that subject and so uh it's a separate challenge to be taken and, and i i've been studying things like pedagogy a little bit and trying to figure out how to adapt methods in the moment for a given student. And I enjoy that kind of thing too. Like everyone learns how to grind uh, differently in ideally than other people. Like you have to be able to relate to the student and it's, it's just a bit of a puzzle that's enjoyable to, to try to solve. Yeah. You know, you, you make a good point. I, I appreciate that you say that because you know, there is, you know, for in the beginning, when I remember when back in, you know, like 15 years ago, when I was at the Center for Mental Arts and we had Uri Hoff, he was coming in to teach classes, there were other people teaching classes. And there, it was, a, it was, a, it was hard because, you know, there weren't as many teachers that I was seeing, seeing in our area. And it, it got to the point where I started seeing a lot of people who were proficient with what they're doing and all of a sudden start teaching. And there were some, you know, t- tough moments. There were some tough moments of people who were very, very good at what, they're, what they do, but the translation into being able to teach it and make other people have a firm understanding, I thought was, it's, it's, it's a different ball game, a totally Absolutely. different ball game. Yeah, and, and it was one of those things that I really, and I'm interested in to, to, to kind of like ask you more in regards to what is your, what is your motivation? Because I think about the motivation behind teaching all the time, and I because I, I've been I've been really doing minimal amount. I mean, I'm doing uh, I teach a class with uh, at uh, Dragons Earth Forge with Matt Parkinson. This is Matt Parkinson such a good guy? But I'm not. I refuse to teach a knife making class at his shop. Like I, I'm going to teach a, just a bottle opener and making tongs and a black. I'd rather teach blacksmithing classes. To be honest with you. And sure. I'm teaching with Pat because, oh, you know, it is it is prestigious. It is prestigious for me to be down there. It is prestigious the fact that I mean, Pat's one of the best, and the fact that he kind of believes in me. And you know, it it it, it, it it's an honor to a certain degree. But there, for me, I have different motivations than than a lot of other people. Right. Yeah. It's. <laughs> I enjoy like whatever I'm doing as long as I'm conscious of. Uh, you know, if I'm a, a frame of mind where I'm, I'm thinking about like I'm on a meta level where I'm conscious of what I, I'm doing, right? And in some way, I'm you know maybe have an interior commentary about it. Um, I, I like kind of analyzing whatever I'm doing in the moment and what are my motivations. Uh, and teaching is is no different. Like, so yeah, there is that. There's the prestige. There's there's the challenge of it. There's the performative aspect of it that you could enjoy. Um, there's the puzzle of it. And also, you know, it's just inspiring. Like if you're around people that have paid good money to come and, and learn something that they are very interested in, you're de facto around a group of people 
that are passionate about what you're passionate about. And that's, yeah. that's really inspiring to be surrounded by that energy. You know, like hmm. here at home, I don't get out much. I'm a hermit. Like right now I'm a family man. I, I've been much more social in the past than I am right now. And, uh, I don't necessarily want to put myself out there just into like any random group of people. I'm not going to share a lot of interests. Like I'm not into, you know, football and, and stuff like that, the common small talk subjects. But if I'm around a group of people that have basically been handpicked to enjoy a knife conversation, like I'm, I'm having fun on a social level and it, it's much easier to do, you know, with that pretense of like, Hey, we love, metalworking and knives you know it's interesting that you say that because i actually was talking to my wife last night because we were talking about i don't know what we were talking about people's friends and the friends we had in college the friends we had in high school and the friends we had you know just the friends we have i find myself gravitating towards my good friends are people who actually can do things like now right now my friends are a lot of mostly blacksmiths. The people I talk to are people who actually are like into making things. And some of them are, and, and there are a lot of them are at a very, very high level. I'm not just saying that I'm saying that it just, I just am in an in awe of the things that my friends are doing. And, and I, and, I, and it's interesting because as, as I grow older, I'm far more interesting, interested in, in people's philosophies and motivations and what they do rather than the person that they are. Yeah, I can see that. I think your values, I mean, people say you get more conservative when you age, and I think that's true Yeah, um, a lot of the time. But I think your values just change, whether it's in any particular direction as you age. Like in my 20s, I like to have a lot more, I don't know, like I, I like to party in my 20s. I like to go out and just kind of smash it and have fun and be obnoxious. Yeah. Even though I'm not an extrovert, I, you know, I drank until I got to the point where I was, but I'm not really into that anymore. Um, hmm. I like, you know, nerdy conversations or, yeah, substantive conversations where maybe I, maybe I can learn something rather than just kind of like blaring my point of view, per se. There is something to that need, that, that social need of like, of like knowledge that that interest in like having your own you know listening to what people say and then kind of having your own aha moment and seeing how it kind of like reflects on you i that is definitely something i like yeah yeah for sure and well as far as the enjoyment of teaching also um i like it if i can you know, like travel and teach uh kind of get somewhere maybe i haven't been or i don't usually go check out the landscape meet meet the different makers that are there um, case in point, like I just got back last week from Phoenix, Arizona, and I was down there for 10 days teaching knife making. And it's a pretty mixed format when I go down there, like we'll do, um, two day weekend classes, which might be like, you know, make a Damascus chef knife or, uh, make a beginner knife, things like that. Forge and forge an integral chef. We've done those. Uh, and then, like, weekdays, I'll teach um, private classes at people's shops by appointment. So it's kind of an interesting mix of formats. And then the private classes will be, like, whatever I I can do slash am qualified to teach that that student would like to request a, a class on, right? But a lot of it is, 
I'll show up at somebody's house. I'm meeting them for the first time, um, certainly in person at least. And I got to check out their shop. We look at knives and and we kind of get into like the work for the day. But a bunch of it is just seeing how how different people's shops are hmm. in different locations. Um, like in Phoenix, you know, a lot of people are real estate values are high. A lot of people are pressed for space. And so you got people working out of, you know, rented, rented uh, storage units for shop spaces uh, or out of, you know, small shops in their home with like half of their shop kind of like down the alley between two houses. Yeah. And it really kind of brings me back to that like roots level of knife making um, where I came from. Like I came up through that. I started out in a, a barn with a dirt floor and and with like nothing and then worked my way up to, you know, I was living in like a shared house with a bunch of surfer roommates in Hawaii. And I had, you know, a, a shop down the side of our house with a couple of grinders and an anvil that was covered with a tarp, you know, all these makeshift situations, but you just, you do it and you have it because you have to, you have to have that to stay sane. And it's kind of refreshing to just see other people working through their stages of that. Yeah. And then to be, to be able to help them with that, like, for one thing, I can come in and, and tune up your skills on this or that, or show you this or that, but I'm also going to be like, yo, your bandsaw is the worst. <laughs> 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 so like, it's not like throw this thing away and get a new one if, if you can't afford that, but let, let's take a minute to like, look at how do you adjust your guides, um, it, you know, to to cut right and then bring that top guide down close to your work or like, you, you know, your drill press table isn't square to the, the drill press spindle. So there's a lot of this stuff, which is like shop whispering yeah, and, and equipment optimizing that sometimes makes it makes a huge difference. Like, you know, why can't I drill hidden tanks? Cause the drill bit always blows out the side of the block. Well, it's because your drill press table is, you know, five or 10 degrees off from being square with the spindle. And you didn't know that it was adjustable. Right. So that's, that's kind of, that's another fun angle, but go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's interesting because, you know, I was, I was actually looking at your, your, your YouTube page and I was watching your, your, the, the Copus, the Copus build. Oh, sure. And it really kind of made me think about your work in regards to being a bladesmith versus being a machinist and the fabrication angle. And, it, and I, you know, when you look at your work in, it, in and of itself, it's, it's some of the most pleasing and crisp and clean and beautiful work of, of all time. What I love about it the most, as we covered this in the last episode, was I love the, the, the idea of how you do compound grinds and how you use the multi bars uh the multi bar or the bar the the edging bar of the damascus to have um a, a clear border within the confines of your s grind which makes the s grind part of the design as opposed to you know just an just an option it's like it needs to be there so when i look at your work it always is very very thoughtful and then when i was watching the copus build i saw the intense uh the the all the machining work and all the precision work needed to get to the point where you could put those knives together so it's it's interesting to me that you 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 have this kind of cuz so there's so much more machining there's so much more um finesse work that's very 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 like exact 
And in order for you to make your knives to be as exact as they are, your process and your building and your tools are very, are very super precision. I was, I enjoyed watching you talk about the bandsaw and how you could cut this bar <laughs> in, in half and you, how you built the, how you built it so the slide would slide and the, everything was really about this precise, this use of, of all your equipment and it really made a lot of sense to me. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that my enthusiasm for my bandsaw carried through to you, Jeff. Well, you didn't say I didn't. What do you mean? We didn't say your bandsaw sucks, yo. Your your bandsaw sucks. No, that was it was awesome. Yeah, I well, I don't. I I gotta make sure that like when I go to people's shops and I'm working with them in their shop, I don't I, I don't impart the feeling to them like I'm down talking their right. equipment. You know, like I don't think there's any such thing as a bad tool. There's just like the tool that you have at the time, and then at least at least as long as you you know its limitations and you're willing to upgrade it at some point if it, if that's what you need to do, then it's a good tool, right? But uh, as for me, um, you know, I mean, I think you were talking to, to like Derek from Malden the other day, and you guys were on a a conversational tack where you're talking, "Hey, we're not really like machines and tools guys foremost," in that. You know, maybe you're not going to stand around at a, a cocktail party, you know, talking about the virtues of, of like uh, hydraulic automatic bandsawing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I get that. Uh, me, I will straight up nerd out on machines if I get the opportunity with people, and uh, I, I am un- unapologetic on that regard. Although I, like ninety nine percent of the time, people just glaze over, you know it's fine. And that's kind of like why you get the style of YouTube video that you get from me. It's not like an Alex Steele style or, uh, or something where it's, it's got a presentational component. Like I'm not, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not a, a personality on camera. I don't, I don't see my strengths that way. I want to provide a video that shows you in, in close detail, how you could do the thing that I'm doing. And with all the little nuances that I can think of while I'm doing it, that you might appreciate me relating because maybe it didn't occur to you. You know, I I don't see myself as becoming a YouTube channel where, like, people that aren't into knife making will watch. It's not that kind of a deal. But um, if I can, in, you know, inspire someone to, like, outfit their shop a little bit, a little bit better than... Um, then I'm happy about that. Um, for me, yes, there's a heavy mechanical component to my my approach to knife making, and it it is what it is at this point. I mean, that's just me. Everyone's got their own personality as a knife maker. I I apparently have an affinity for machines, and you know, the last several years of making full time in my own shop, I've just discovered more and more that. You know, maybe I could have been a career machinist too. Maybe I would have been happy doing that. I mean, it's better to be a knife maker, obviously. But uh, <laughs> I really well, do enjoy machining and welding. Well, what, but getting back to what you're saying, I, mean, I think that what Derek and I, what I was referring to is, is growing up, my father was a painter and a you know like an, a sculptor and artist, and we just didn't have the we just didn't have the 
we just didn't have the uh, obsessive love of the tools that we're using. And it, and it was like very much along the lines of like, I was far more interested in my dad and I were far more interested in the outcome. And I, I think it was, it, it just, it was imparted in me and that was the case. But what I appreciate about you is the fact that it is very clear and apparent. I think that, you know, I think it's interesting about the, the name and the perception of what a bladesmith is. And I think that people just, and then a lot of it also with, also with like the flavors of the month or the kind of trends that are going on. I think that I hear a lot of people and talk to a lot of people about how much forging did you do and how much, you know, what's the forged, you know, and then there's this, this kind of like difference between the tactile qualities of hand forging and also the mechanical. And then how does it live within the confines of these, the kind of the more mechanical version, um, mechanical methods that you use in order to get the same thing across. I'm fascinated by it all. And what I, what interests me about your work is because it's so precise. I mean, your, your, your mosaics are so precise and the, everything is just so, I mean, I don't, I really, when I say you're on the Mount Rushmore, you're on the Mount Rushmore and I don't even think it's debatable. And it's because of that level of detail, but clearly the level of detail also comes from the precision of your equipment and your use and knowledge and techniques to make that equipment hum. Yeah, well, so it's <laughs> it's a huge range of subjects to talk about, yeah. like that you've just covered in in one paragraph. Like, sorry, <laughs> no, it's great. The my problem is pretty much every sentence of yours. I'm thinking of like a spinoff thought to that. And then forgetting it, like during your next sentence. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. No apology. Like, I like talking about this stuff. Um, so let me just see if I can snatch at some of those, those former thoughts. Like, so absolutely outcome, I think, is the most important thing. You're right about that. Um, I don't think it matters kind of at all what processes were used to arrive at a given object, um, it, it really just matters the quality and appearance, qualities and appearance of the finished object. Uh, you'll see, well, like among the world's best knife makers, like the actual best ones, um, you'll see kind of differences in approach to, well, for instance, um, embellishment, right? Right. Uh, and they range from the mechanical side of the per, of the spectrum to, you know, the more the more organic and um, like free form applied arts side of the spectrum. Um, think about like, have you um, seen much of like Michael Walker's knife making? Not that I know of. You know who Michael Walker is? <sighs> I'm drawing a blank right now. Okay, I not might, to put might... you on the spot. No, a lot fine. Of, a lot of people wouldn't that aren't like hardcore knife making nerds from way back not that you're not um but michael walker is like the guy that invented the liner lock uh and he's still probably like the premier folding knife maker in the world and and that is not an easy title to give anyone but i've i've seen more people say it about michael walker than any other maker He's still active. He's still making stuff. You can check him out on Instagram. But um, he is a, a good example, in my mind, of a guy who's on the mechanical end of the embellishment and uh, design spectrum. So 
And he'll stay, say stuff like, I'm not a real machinist or I'm a hack machinist. Don't listen to him. The guy is a mechanical genius. Like he, he could pretty much invent a new locking mechanism for any given knife he wants to make throughout his career, I think. He's, he's just got that kind of mind. But if you look at how he embellishes his knives, a lot of it is with, like, you know, EDM work, um, precision milling. Uh, I don't know if he uses guillotine machines. But, you know, things like that where they're exotic machines that take exotic skills to even be able to, like, use. So there's that. And I have a little bit of that. I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be like this mechanical gene. The guy's practically an android, okay? I'm never going to be like that. Or Owen Wood. Owen Wood's another guy that is very good with machine embellishment, like little precision inlays and, and gorgeous stuff. On the other end of the spectrum, you have, uh, well, like Andrew Mears. I'm sure you know who, yeah, who Mears sure. is. Sure. Look at Mears' art. It's amazing, but it's like traditional, you know, Japanese applied arts and other things. You know, very like hand drawn, hand cut. Uh, Ilya, you know, does really cool engraving and stuff that way. Or very like impressive. Jean Louis Regal. Sure. Again. And, and there's a whole spectrum of everything in between. And I think naturally I fall a little bit more toward the mechanical side of the spectrum. And it's a constant challenge for me to like be more organic in my approach because I'm naturally a little bit more uh, machine oriented. Yeah. So going forward, like, I live in, in the middle of nowhere, kind of. Like, we don't really have a community college here. I wish we did. I would take, you know, sketching classes and stuff, because I would really like to be more up on, you know, traditional art composition and applied arts. Like, going forward, that's a huge area where I want to grow. I find that interesting that you say that, because I feel like your work is very... When I look at your work, it's very sophisticated in regards to the decisions that you've made. And that, to me, in and of itself, is more important to the art than, you know, whether or not you're free form or anything like that. Sure. you got to have a good foundation to build on. And, and if I have that, then I'm glad about that. I mean, I've, I've looked at a ton of knives. That's right. one thing. Um, like, a lot of knives, all the knives, annual books and stuff. and you get a sense over time about what do I, what, like what flow or feel do I appreciate in design? And then, you know, what's the difference between like a simple, elegant, well-designed knife that pleases the eye and then like a materially impressive, highly embellished, but like chunky wedding caked knife. <laughs> Why well, like a wedding cake knife? Like yeah, that. you know, just awful, like filigree everywhere and like blocky lines intersecting. Um, and and I very much tend toward the former side of the spectrum. Um, like one of my favorite, like I'm a Japanese culture nerd, I guess you could say. Um, in, in that there's just so many things from like the Japanese aesthetic that really speak to me and like one of their big things is wabi sabi yes yes i'm a i'm a fan of wabi sabi can you explain what wabi sabi is um so it's it's being like a, an object with wabi sabi can be it can be fancy but it's not typically very fancy 
However, it's it's beautiful in in um, form and or function, but in a restrained or elegant way. So, uh, you know, good lines and just an appropriate surface texture are going to look a lot better than Salem. You know, gold everywhere and, and poor lines. Okay. Um. I mean that that suffuses all the Japanese arts. I mean, it's a rusticity and, and an elegance at once. I think that there's something to be said about that. And I think that it's also, I'm under the impression it's also like under, appreciating a flaw, isn't it? Isn't it oh, a little bit? absolutely. That's a component of it. You know? Yeah, I think that would fall under like the rustic nature yeah. of things, right? In a way, it's kind of like, I feel like, it's a humble brag sometimes when you're like, this object that I made was so perfect that I had to include a flaw to make a statement about the fact that I'm not perfect. That I, you know what that that, that is that that is more of a humble. Yeah, it is a total humble brag. It's just like I know I had to. I couldn't give you an A, so I had to like you know throw it on the ground a couple times, and all of a sudden now it's an A minus. Right, right. As I mean, an affectation. Obviously, obviously, that's not. I mean that's not the same thing. I like I love the idea of when they had these pots that were had cracks in them and then they'd fill them with gold leaf. Yeah. And then that was the that was the that was the embellishment. That was what was so beautiful about it. Yeah, that that really is cool. It's a it's a feature, not a bug at that point. So coming back to when you were teaching uh in in Phoenix and you were t- going to people's shops, especially shops that weren't as like, you know, weren't as like, had, didn't have as many tools. What were some of the things that you were telling these, these guys? Because I mean, obviously you have incredible power hammers and rollers and all in mills and all this stuff in this, in, in this technique and you have all the skill and stuff like that. When you're going to someone's smaller shop, what are you focusing on in, in terms of the work that they're going to try to do? Uh, there's definitely a few key things that come up time and again um off the top of my head almost the most common one is like have better lighting Hmm. like like for god's sake at the grinder people will just not have enough light or it'll be from the wrong direction and um like to teach grinding i like to succeed at teaching i don't like to fail at teaching and I like the student to succeed. You know, everyone comes away with a good feeling when the student has actually learned something. And it's just not going to happen if you're teaching grinding in bad light. And so until we can get light at both sides of the grinder, I almost feel like it's a waste of time trying to teach someone to grind accurately. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Um, I mean, currently what I have at my <clears throat> Broadbeck grinder which is a lovely go. machine, by the way. Um, I just have, you know, like I, I think I went to probably a thrift store at some point a couple times, and I found those old, like, gooseneck reading lamps. And I put one on a pivot at each side of the grinder, just a little bit behind the line of the platen, and now I have a pivotable uh, work light on either side of the machine that can shine at the platen from the front or at the platen from the back, too or from overhead or whatever, and you, you know, put some like 500K temperature, like LED bulbs in them suckers, and you can actually see what you're doing. Wow. So there's that. And then there's, 
you know, little things like I mentioned, people's bandsaws generally aren't well set up, whether they're, you know, cutting wood or metal. And people will, they'll, they'll be like, ah, oh, well, I'm sorry about my bandsaw. Like, it's just, you know, this old four by six Harbor Freight thing. It's all I can afford. And it never cuts straight and the blade jumps off and stuff like that. People struggle in particular. And um, there's a lot that can be done for those little machines. And a lot of it is just learn how to make the blade track right and learn how to tension it right and learn how to set the guides up right and you'll get straight cuts out of it. And and the thing is, I can remember not knowing anything about that stuff myself. I can remember having that cheap saw. I had a couple of those cheap saws. And I remember that exact feeling of being stymied. Like, you know, I got this new new tool. I'm stoked on it. It should be able to do these things. And yet the blade just falls off. And I remember not having any clue at all. And then all the little things I went through, talking to people. I mean, a lot of, some of it was before you could like learn on YouTube about it. And, and finally going through to the point where I can kind of diagnose what a machine is doing wrong and if it's fixable and what you would do. And it's just, it's rewarding to be able to help people through that stuff because I know how frustrating it is. Yeah. I would imagine that there's a lot of like trying to manage the expectation of the person whose shop it is. Because Always. <laughs> the, yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, managing expectations. So. Uh, forging Damascus or forging things from large stock. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a press or a power hammer, I can't really kind of come in and teach you how to do stuff. Some things, if you don't have a press or a hammer and people, people want to think they can do something and it's like, well, okay, maybe you could do this if you were me and you're, you know, swinging a six and a half pound Ilya hammer and you have like, nearly 20 years of experience forging things, I can make it look like it can be done by hand, but you can't do it by hand. And, you know, not to be arrogant, but that's just like the facts of the matter a lot of the time. People just need more time swinging a hammer. And it's not something I can teach them in one day. I can teach them how to get there, but that's a, you know, that path is for their steps alone, to to paraphrase the Grateful Dead. I think that I think that there's always I think managing expectations is something that is very very difficult especially in the younger generations because you know we we look at we look at how things are made and we look at the you know trying to get to a, a person's level especially looking at social media and stuff like that and they're not people want instant information they want instant how did you do that I get so many messages from people saying how did you do this specific thing no and it's really? always like I bet you get it all the time. Make a and video on that. Yeah, I, I get that all the time. And I was actually, when I was watching one, uh, the, your videos and it, how you were making uh, your, your mosaic pattern, Damascus, and I, it was like, I think it was like an early stage bar. What I got out of it was, I really, and this is something that I love power hammers. I love power hammers. But I, I really noticed that I felt like you were getting a lot of the brute work done with the power hammers, but like your finesse forging was coming through your rollers. And I, part of me wonders if, if, if people don't realize the value of that, especially when you're making uh, Damascus billets and stuff like that, how important the rollers actually are. It's a really nice thing to have. That's um, kind of my most recent acquisition as as far as forging machinery. 
I think I had I've had that rolling mill for uh, a couple of years now. And uh at first, I mean there's the obvious uses and I used it for that, but after a while I realized it's definitely useful for a wider range of things and and one of those things is really using it. So if you're if you're familiar with power hammer forging, you know, at a basic level, especially with Damascus, you'll know that like kiss blocks are a pretty useful thing to have. And that's a chunk of stock. Usually it might be mild steel, a, a chunk of mild steel of a given thickness that you can throw between the dies or, or set up next to the top die or whatever your configuration is to where it stops, it stops the um, top die from coming down past the, uh, the thickness of, of the, the kiss block so that you can forge an entire hot bar between the dies to the size of the kiss block evenly. That way you're getting a flat surface and, and you're getting a known dimension and you're kind of reducing the amount of grinding that you may have to do later. It has benefits, but the rolling mill can be used as kiss blocks and in a, in a much more finessed way. Like you have an unlimited range of size available as long as you can feed a bar through a rolling mill because the top roller on the rolling mill is infinitely adjustable. So it's pretty cool. I can take... Let's say I've started a billet and I've forged one pattern element. Now I have to make some other pattern elements that are going to get combined with that in, in like a subsequent billet. So I have a known element that's forged already, and it's of a specific dimension. And so when I forge my next elements, they have to have corresponding dimensions to fit neatly into like the packet of the eventual billet. Um, and so I can actually set the rolling mill to the diameter to the you know the thickness of those exactly. previous elements and just roll my next pattern elements through it's pretty neat that way yeah it's almost like it reminds me of in the restaurant business there's a thing called a sheeter and it's basically in order to when you're making dough it just you just roll it you just send it through and it just kneads it through and it gets you the gets you the right size and it's it's i i i think that part of me th- thinks that you figured out ways in which to be more efficient because of the precision that you're looking for. And I think that there's a lot of people who have shops who they're, they're unwilling to understand the amount of time and energy and investment in order to get that level of precision and to be able to kind of like, you know, uh, execute it. Yes. Uh, it's actually a thing that I forget about myself. So when I go to shops that are not mine, um, even well-equipped shops like CMA, there will be things I'll notice where I'm like, oh, well, this is why I have such an easy time of it in my own shop. Yeah, I mean, it's easy for me now just because I'm used to the equipment and my equipment has been optimized over time. But you, you tend to forget a little bit about that iterative process until you get back to somebody else's shop. Um, <laughs> like my power hammer dies, they're perfect for the kind of work that I do, you know, big and flat. You get to somebody else's shop that has a nice hammer, but if the dies aren't like that, then like maybe good luck teaching them how to, how to weld up a big composite tile thing without any problems. Yeah. So then you have to like, you know, when you're looking in someone's shop, you have to say, okay, we're not doing that. We're not, <laughs> your dies are all, I mean, my, if you came to my shop, You'd look at my dies and you and you would say, Jeff, we're not making composite. We're not making composite <laughs> Damascus here. Your dies are off by a mile. 
Well, but it's not just that. I mean, it is that for sure. But I, I try not to like have it be, you know, that that finite. Like if I can think of a workaround, that's an interesting challenge and um and quite instructive. So like maybe you didn't have exactly the right dies. Well, maybe we would do the same. We'd be able to arrive at the same, you know, composite blade. But instead of, you know, open welds with just oil for flux, maybe we're going to use like a shimstock ice cream sandwich billet. And then that's really going to allow you to do the same class of work um, with like training wheels. What is it in? What is an ice cream sandwich? Okay, so ice cream sandwich, right? Uh, the main component is the ice cream filling, and then it's just got like rectangles of cookie on either side, right? Right. Okay. So the ice cream is like mosaic tiles and maybe an edge bar, and then the cookies are just shim stock of fifteen and twenty. Mm. You make a packet. Uh, and it's basically like a big flat can, and you're making, you know, just like a mono tile in a flat can. And uh, you just kind of TIG seal everything shut. Meg would work too, but it just takes a little more grinding. But that allows you to really keep atmosphere out. Like Kyle Royer does it a lot, you know, on all of his billets. Uh, Matt Parkinson teaches multibar that way, I think. It's a super effective technique to know for this and that. Wow. And it's called Ice Cream Sandwich? That's what I call it. Oh, that's what you call it. I like. I was like, I was like, wow, what a what a great what a. I didn't realize. I didn't realize the old guys were coming up with names like that. Well, I'm starting to be an old guy, but I I come up with my own names for pretty much everything. So what would you? So what would you say for a young guy starting out? And I know you deal with a lot of them. What is the one thing thing that they should be looking into? What what should they be focusing on? Man, that's like asking me who the best like drummer is. <laughs> well, I mean, you can tell me. You can give me your top five drummers. I'll take your top five drummers too if you want. All right, we can get to that later. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so if I'm assuming that that this question is predicated upon like general knife making, right? Yeah, a guy that wants to be a knife maker. Sure, they want to be you. They want to be Salem Junior. Uh, well, I'd be like, well, look, dude. Uh, if you want to be broke all the time, I'll tell you how. <laughs> uh, the best way is to like get a real grinder first, I think. You got to have a good grinder no matter what. Um I think that's kind of like the single greatest leap in ability imparted by a by an equipment purchase that you're going to see. Um and I think that was like Ken Onion he was a teacher of mine, uh, and he, he when he got into knife making, he went to go talk to Stan Fujisaka, because um, they're both Oahu guys. Stan's like a you know folding knife legend, made just beautiful stuff. And Ken went to him to learn how to make knives, and Stan was like, "Well, what you got to do first is you know buy a real grinder, and that'll show me a that you're serious about the craft, and b it's just going to make your your life incredibly easier." And I mean, I think that that's a piece of advice that's going to remain timeless. Well, it is interesting how, you know, on Knife Talk, we get a lot of messages of people who they'll say, I want to do this, but I don't have this, or I don't want to get this. And it's like, you, there's a lot of people who want their cake and, and they, they want their cake and eat it too. It's like, it is hard to make the justification. Well, I only have a one by a one by 30 grinder. I have, this is working fine by me, but there is this like 
in order to get to a certain level that you definitely you need to make some sacrifices that you can't do any other way otherwise you're just wasting your time and energy sure and there's one thing that i can't teach and i i don't know that it's teachable at all and that's just to have that obsessive drive if you will yeah. to be better to be the best you know and and with that comes the inevitability that you will get better tools do you have you always felt that way when you're a knife maker when you started out in knife making that you just wanted it you were were you obsessive oh for sure it it wasn't even necessarily knife making to begin with but it was metalworking and and forging more in particular like early on i was more into decorative blacksmithing actually uh or you know hardware stuff like yeah. that and uh and then it, i became more of a specialist in in knives and things along the way but yeah i was always like there was just no question. I, I wouldn't even think like, why, why do I want like, <laughs> why do I want a 150 pound anvil so bad? Why am I going to spend like literally all of the money that I have right now on this thing? I just did it because I had to have it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I remember I, I had probably 550 bucks to my name and I spent 500 of those on a brand new Victor journeyman cutting torch, you know, early in my career. Cause I needed to weld and I, I didn't have electricity. I was off the grid. Like it's always been kind of a skewed perspective from which to make financial decisions, but it is what it is. Well, but I mean, that, I mean, that's what it comes down to is, I mean, I, you, when you, anything you, any person who's really just wants it bad enough, they just make it happen no matter what. I mean, you know, it's yes. unfortunately, unfortunately that's always, the, that's the hard part is, is like, it's, it's, you know, Working hard is important, but also like cutting your time back with good tools is is going to help that obsession go a little bit faster. Absolutely. And I think there probably is the case that exists where a person does have that level of drive, and yet there's some <clears throat> some part of the curve that they just can't quite overcome, whether it's, you know, having the financial situation to afford equipment or or, you know, some some rut they might be stuck in in their life. And I get that, but Maybe that's where the role of a teacher can come in is just, you know, someone like me can come to your shop and be like, look, like if you do this and this, you're going to be able to get past this problem that you're having. Because, I mean, there, there are times even when you're obsessed that you feel like, well, maybe, maybe I just need to give up. Yeah, but you can't teach someone not to be cheap, you know? <laughs> that's true. Although I think maybe maybe sometimes people are cheap or they think they're cheap and then they find that obsession and then they realize that they are willing to not be cheap for that one thing. You know what's funny? I'm cheap. I'm notoriously cheap, but I have a business partner who is not cheap. And he and I always I let him not convince, but he says this is what we need to do. This is what we need to get. Just get it. So it like he offsets my cheapness by saying this is going to save us money. And if it saves us money, then it's worth it. And that's how I, that's how I get past. My, my, most of my best decisions have been based, based on my business partner saying, stop being so cheap. This is, going to, this is going to make things go a lot faster, and I need you to go faster. Yeah, see, that's a, a, a super important, important voice to have. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I have that voice in my head, but if I didn't, I think I'd reach out and find a, a business partner that could do that for me. 
Well, you gone from you know having five hundred fifty dollars in your pocket, and you spend five hundred on a on a on a uh, Victor torch to now you know like you you know you have some of the you know best tools that are going to make your job just go by so fast. Right, but you know it, it's still it's still always sacrifices to get there. What do you um, think? Oh, sorry, keep going. Oh, like these days, it's it's not a five hundred dollar torch; it's you know a five thousand dollar power hammer. Yeah. It's just the scale that's changed. What do you think, besides getting the grinder, what was the big moment tool in your life that really kind of like changed the way things happen? What was that first like big, like, oh man, this is going to be a, this is going to change things? The funny thing is I, I, I felt that feeling serially about a huge list of tools that I wanted to acquire. I was like, I could always see it in my head. This is what I want to be able to do, um, and this is what I would need to be able to do that. And oftentimes, they, the two would feel very tied together. It wasn't like, well, I can do it, you know, in a more laborious way until I get that tool. Sometimes it's like I flat can't do it, you know, like I can't make mosaic Damascus until I get a hammer or a press, or you know, if you're super talented and completely nuts, you can. Maybe do mosaic Damascus with a with a um, what do you call those presses? The uh, fly press. Oh, Jesus like Jason Christ. Willard. Have you seen that dude? <laughs> he's unbelievable. Absolutely. He's, he's sweating every time. If you, Jason Ellard's in Australia, and if you ever watch how he makes hammers or Damascus, he's using a fly press, and boy, he's making. And you watch his videos, you feel more tired than he does. Because <laughs> he's just moving that fly yeah. press around and ducking every single time and trying to put that thing together. It is a very impressive, very impressive young man. Absolutely, and and I mean, if you look at his patterns and stuff, you know, I know how much work goes into that. Like a lot of work, even for me with big power hammers and stuff. Like I got so much respect for someone who's able to do that with a fly press. I, but uh, I, here's hoping that he gets, you know, some better equipment before he's all worn out and old and tired. Yeah, but he's young, and he's he's young, he's a young kid, and he's going to be able to, like, work it out. And then once he's going to get the, the – he wanting to get something bigger, he's going to be like, why did I wait so long? It's fine. Well, That's the one thing I think that people always say when they get a new oh, heat-treating oven or they get a new grinder or even just jumping to a variable speed, a VFD or something like that on their grinder – they always say, why did I wait so long? Why did I wait so long? Yes, I've definitely done that before. Like, kick yourself for just having suffered for years at a time, maybe, knowing that you needed some tool or improvement and just not quite making it happen. Um, a lot of the time, for me, that's just with small, even small shop improvements. Um, you get into a flow state and you're working and you don't want to break your workflow to make that thing that you've just noticed that you need or, or whatever it might be. And then you, you keep doing that every, you only remember that you need that thing or could make that thing to make your life easier when you're involved in the process. That's right. That it would help. And then if you don't stop and, and make that thing or adjustment or whatever at that moment, you forget about it again. And you only remember it when you're doing that thing again and so on and so forth. And, and you know, years will go by. And I've, I've, it's been a process of learning to heed that voice a little bit better and sometimes just stop and like make that investment in time. Yes, this time it's going to take me 
maybe half a day more to do this thing because I stopped and I made the thing that I always wish I had. But from this point forward, like even the next time I make it, I'm going to save that much time, you know, and then just to have that realization, damn, I should have done that three, four years ago. But it's too hard. It's too hard, especially if you're really busy because it's such, it is, yeah, I know that, that expression, it's the expression of you only fix your gutters on your house when it's, you only want to fix your gutters when it's raining. When, yeah. when it's not raining, you don't worry about your gutters. Yeah, the roof doesn't leak, you know, when, it, right. when it's dry out. That's right, right. Can't you never think, <laughs> yeah, you never think about it until you need it at the exact moment. And it's funny because, you know, what, for me, I hate doing those repairs because I just, I have such a limited amount of time and I have to budget those. I almost have to budget these fix ups in the week. Like I have to like set time aside. All right, I'm going to set a couple hours aside just for this, but I have to plan it out. Otherwise, it's just too, it's just too much for me. If I don't budget in, you're repairing something, I can, it really kind of gets me down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, there's a time management aspect to it, for sure. And you can rationalize that. You know, you can say, yeah, I'm going to take the extra time now, but it's going to save me time. It's kind of like having your business manager telling you to invest in the tool, right? Right. Um, but then there's also, like, state of mind uh, and productivity. And, and to me, that's something that I have to, I have to curate. Um, like, I feel like, like I'm pretty darn sure I'm pretty heavy, like somewhere on the ADHD spectrum. Certainly was as a kid. I have difficulty focusing, you know, I have difficulty remembering things, a lot of the, the kind of like hallmark attributes. And, uh, and so I also have to kind of curate my mental space and like I work, I work better toward the end of a day. Like I'm not a great morning person and I can get amazing amounts of, of work done when I'm in a flow state, but being able to achieve a flow state is, is uh, sporadic at best sometimes. Hmm. And so you know, like, like I'm a big procrastinator if I don't watch out all that kind of stuff. And so it helps me. Like if I walk into the shop, it's morning I'm kind of cold, like I'm just not into it yet, but I know I got to be out there doing something to instead of trying to like bang right into, you know, resuming whatever project that was on that I was, you know, in flow state enjoying last night. I'm not there anymore mentally first thing in the morning to have a range of, of other projects that I could be working on that are, that are going to, I can do that first hour or two of the day that are going to kind of put me into a more focused state that I can later maybe achieve flow from. So like sweeping the shop, straightening up from the last stuff that I did, fixing a machine, you know, so I'll, I'll actually kind of curate and save tasks like that for different parts of the day when I, when I need that kind of work. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? Cause the flow state is a fascinating concept. What do you think gets you into the flow state? Uh, time for one thing and distraction. So. As long as I can, as long as I can get in there and, like I say, get to work on something, I might start sweeping the floor. When I'm when I'm done with that, like on my another hallmark of ADHD, like I might start doing one thing, but then I'm gonna notice another thing that needs doing, and I'm not gonna get the first thing done because I break off and start on the other thing, which leads me into like a third thing, and this branching decision tree where, like, you know, two hours later I'm working on something unrecognizable from where I started which can be very frustrating 
or, or if you learn how to kind of manage it, you know, maybe you're starting on working something less consequential and you allow allow that kind of like decision process to bring you around to the thing that you need to be working on, if that makes sense. Sure. Like I start with sweeping the floor and then I'll notice that uh, there's like, you know, more of a clutter issue that I should have dealt with. And then while I'm clearing that up, I notice, well, like here's something about this this part of the shop organizationally that could be better. And so you kind of get into that. And then like the chatter in your mind stills a little bit. And you just kind of get more and more focused by degrees on what you're doing in the moment. And then whether or not it's a conscious decision, I'll find myself able to actually kind of like head on address what I need to be working on at the moment once I get into that more quiet mental state. Like at some point I'll actually feel I'll feel the urge to drop whatever I, I've been, you know, make work I've been working on and actually go and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to start on this billet again or like, you know, this design or something. I love the concept of the flow state, which is for anyone wanting to know, it's more or less everything's working right and you're just kind of like, it's almost like you're an auto autopilot. Yeah. But everything's in this like, I get flow state for me the best I can really kind of describe it outside of being in a shop is when I used to run and I would, and I would, I was, uh, I was training for the New York city marathon and we would go on long runs. And then after five, after five miles, I started to go into autopilot. Like, it, like I was concentrating on my breathing, not concentrating on the running. And I was, I was, I was, you know, doing a really good, brisk and even pace and I was focusing on my breathing and then everything started to go into this meditative space where like from my chest down I couldn't from my waist down I couldn't feel my legs like I couldn't even I couldn't I didn't even know I mean it was just going sure. and you feel good and you're feeling good and everything's working right and in a shop it's like to me it's about everything's organized you know the task at hand and everything is, your mind is clear and everything is working right. And you're just like, you don't even have to like think too hard. It's just working. It's and then, working. yeah, totally. It, it's an amazing feeling, you know, when you can get there, everything feels right. And then the other thing is when you've been in that state for like four or five hours or whatever, and it, and like the dust kind of settles and you, and you mentally surface and look around, you're like, oh my God, what time is it? Yeah. You know? It's amazing the way time will pass, and that's how you know you've been in that quality flow state too. When I've had a day where there's been some real good productivity and like flow state, when I'm driving home, I'm a little bit I'm not paying attention as much, and I actually have to like I can I can tell on the drive that I'm like I'm somewhere else, like my mind is somewhere else. And when I come home, my wife says, "You are you with us? Are you with us?" Because you end up in this like. There's like a degree of euphoria that you you're like it's hard to like kind of like get out of and it's like yeah. it's, it's a degree of happiness too yeah and it, it's it, like it'll make you a little dopey right yeah it makes you a little dopey no totally dopey it's to the point where I, my wife has said over the years she's known me 25 years she knows me come back from the shop or having a good day at the shop or whatever she'll say are you present are you with us are you are you hello are you or if I come home and I'm all jazzed up from it from it she's just like knows to kind of that I need to like 
I need to calm down. She like walks away a little bit. She's like, all right, I'm going to let you just kind of run around the house for a little bit to kind of calm down. But it, it is this, it is a, it's probably also an extraordinary moment of human satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, you know, some of the times in my life when I've realized in the moment I'm the happy and happiest has been just from flow state related activity. Yeah. Because it's it doesn't even have to be a finish like I, you can achieve that sense of happiness from not even just the finished product. It's the journey. It's yeah. the satisfaction with the journey. Yep. It, it it takes that kind of like you know hackneyed saying and and just makes it absolutely um, real. Yeah. When I watched you in the in the in the um, in the Copus the Copus video when you were when you cut that bar down in two lengthwise. You were talking about the bandsaw. You were talking about the sled that was driving it forward. You were you had made these like bolts. You know you threaded rot. You know you threaded bolts and you tapped and drilled and you had all these like things to hold it in place, sure. hold it tight and stuff like that. And you were talking about the machinery and stuff like that. And after you cut it, number one, you could tell that the bar was like on the money square. You you know I know that you use surface grinders and you're very like you're using your calipers and you're very very precise. When you cut it down the middle, I could tell the happiness of just looking at the cut. You were looking at the cut and you were talking about the cut and it was like this moment of like, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. This, is, this is what it's supposed to be right here. Which, you know, a lot of people would find a little bit absurd. The fact that I could, you know, pull a bar of, of bandsaw cut steel off of a machine and look at it and almost... Like feel happiness from it and almost wax rhapsodic about it. Yeah, I, you could tell that. <laughs> I could tell that because I think it has to do with the fact that you had put so much into getting that cut correct that it had to have been incredibly satisfying to see it done the way you were hoping it to be done. Truly, yeah. And then, I mean, a lot of that just comes because I've done that process a bunch of other times and I know what a pain in the neck it is to deal with when that process doesn't go right. Right. And so now, you know, it's not just that moment of me pulling something off the saw and seeing that it cut just how I wanted it to. It's the the, the foreknowledge of like, this is going to make my next two days like way less stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, there, that's definitely a big part of what's to be said for, for a precision approach and preci- precision tools. But it's not just the tools. That's, see, that's the thing. It's like when we were getting back to when I was talking with Derek from Alden's, didn't care about the tools as much. I, I, it's it's and I and I talk to other knife makers who who get criticism on you know from people say if, if I had those tools then I could if I had those tools and I could do that too. It's never just the tools. It's always always. I mean, a tool that's not being used with proper technique or any technique is just a paperweight. So it's like the fact that you kind of had an understanding of what needed to be done and then you achieved it. Yes. Well, right. So absolutely, a a tool that's not being used is just a paperweight. And that's a a big deal. I feel like when people are getting into knife making, they ask questions like, you know, what are the range of tools that I should get to just, you know, be a good operating shop? And they're looking, they're looking to be like handed a list, right? And, uh, and maybe they haven't even made a knife yet sometimes. And it's like, well, first you got to figure out if you even like to do this. Right. And then the the degree to which you like doing this. And then you got to figure out what kind of a knife maker are you going to be and, and get, get a little more experience under your belt and, you know, how much space do you have and what's your economics and all this stuff. 
that's going to drive, you know, what tools are going to make sense for you to buy. I think that people sometimes buy the things that they think a person should have, and then they end up being expensive paperweights. Or what they see. Absolutely. A lot of it is like, you see what other people have, and you see, maybe I should get one of those, or I really need one of those. And it's 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 not having an understanding of ever being using one. I, I have people sent messages to me about like things that they want to buy, but they've never used them before. And you know, there's the one guy who you know the you know one in ten who's like an ingenue, and all of a sudden he just gets it, and he's just like, I just watched a couple YouTube videos, and I figured it out. But a lot of people are just like they think that they know, but they have no idea. Yeah. Um, well, I think that there's just. There's just a huge number of those types of folks that exist in the world in any pursuit. And we're just seeing this number of them getting into knife making now because knife making has become, you know, more in the public eye for better or worse. Yeah. To me, it's the same thing with students in general. I mean, I think for students that come to my shop, especially from locally, um, I think maybe one out of every 10 of them ever really, really sticks with it. Because people just, they figure out how much work it is and, and maybe they only want to do it once. Or even, you know, teaching people somewhere else, like in a, in a school setting or something. You just got to realize a lot of those people are not there because they want to be a knife maker. Um, they're just there to see what it's like to make one knife and that's okay for them. I love those students. Yeah, that, I love that's those also students. great. Those students who come in just because they want to make something and to show their friends and they don't necessarily want to do it again. Those are great students. Absolutely. I, oh, they're great students because they they, they want to just they want the experience of it all, and they're not looking at the class as an investment for their future. They're looking at it as an experience, and they want to get as much out of it as possible and walk out with something that they can tell their friends. I made this. I love those students. Yeah, it's it's kind of refreshing. When I teach, when I when I any kind of teaching I do, and I really I, I like I say I'm hesitant to go. I'm not looking to do it a lot. I I like Pat a lot. I like Matt a lot, and that's you know these. I it's based on the relationships that I have, and when I have the opportunity to do teach a class, I always prefer to do beginner style classes, like with minimal tools. Like I want to, I would rather people get comfortable with an anvil, anvil and a hammer and a little bit of grinding, like this friction folder class, it's going to be like very, I mean, you don't need a power hammer to do this. You don't need any sure. press. You don't need anything. Everything is the, the only thing you need is a hammer. You need a uh, anvil, a grinder helps, but you don't even need a very expensive, you know, a very big grinder. Cause it's not that much grinding and you need a vice. And that's all, that's all. And I like the idea of being able to give people the idea that they can make something with minimal tools. I, we're doing a, at Matt's place to do these tong, this tong making class. And you don't need to, I mean, it, it, it definitely helps to use a power hammer to draw the reins out. But I mean, yep. you can make a pair of tongs by hand very, very effectively. And it, I just, I love the idea of giving somebody the opportunity to say, hey, you know what? I can do this in my shop. You know, I have, I don't need, I don't need, uh, expensive equipment to do it. For sure. Well, that, that kind of ties in with what I was saying about roots knife making and just seeing, seeing people's transitional shops out there. Yeah. That's what, what they have to work with in the moment and, uh, and kind of with those constraints in mind, trying to do the best job possible. It's very empowering what you can do with pretty limited equipment for sure. I have, I mean, I know you have, you have things you want to talk about, but I have one last question I want to ask you. 
Well, I mean, not one last question, but I have a question I've been meaning to ask you for a while, since the last time we talked. All right, all right. Talking about your night, and then feel free if you want to like, if you got something you want to talk about, okay. When, when I was talking about your knives last time and we were looking at the Damascus and, and we were looking about how the, the mosaic pattern is, makes the S-grind especially uh, part of, you know, in, integral to the design. What is your feeling? And I know that, you know, I, I love the way you do your Damascus. I love the way you do your, your bolsters. I love, the way, I love everything you do. What is and now that I notice in the past, I guess, couple of years, you've been using the pentagra- pantograph, 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 yeah. to make these inlaid uh, handles. I'm starting to notice that you're doing a lot more. You're you're kind of like moving into having more control over the handle in and of itself. Where are we going with when I say we, I'm saying you? Where are you go headed towards in the mindset of how your knives are going to change? Okay, uh, so that's a great question, and that is something that I wanted to talk about. Um, nice. So, pantographs again, that's kind of more of a right brain tool, a little bit more on the machinisty precision side, which you know, suits my personality, I guess. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a, a tool with huge artistic possibilities too. Um, there's, in fact, there's such a range of possibility for what you can do with a pantograph. I'm sure I'll probably only get to about 10% of it because this was a machine that, I mean, incredibly skilled operators used to do, you know, unimaginably precise work with at one point in time. This is, you know, the, the CNC milling of its day but also CNC engraving. So I, you know, they used to cut Rolex dials and stuff with a pantograph, among other things. What I tend to use it for at the moment is more like inlay handles. It's very good at creating precision, you know, pockets and inlays to fit them. Um, and what I'm doing with it now is a little bit simplistic in terms of what it can ultimately do even for me, perhaps. But it's getting my feet wet. Right. I mean, the obvious class of work to do with a pantograph when you're getting your feet wet with it is learn how to do good inlay. And there's a ton of cool knives that I've looked at over time where it had really nice inlay. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, gosh, dang it. So... I don't know why, but my my brain just fails miserably to come don't up worry with, about with that. names. You know what don't I'm saying? Don't worry about names. I can't. I don't know names. Right, right. Um, so inlay, the one thing. But what I really would like to do is uh, one thing that always drives me a little bit crazy about knives is I like I like all the curves of knives. Like a an elegantly designed knife to me is a composition of subtle curves that complement each other or, or maybe yeah. echo each other. And uh, and you get that all the way through the blade, like the top of your handle with a little drop to the end of it. That's that's a subtle curve. The back of the handle, that can be a curve. Everything through the knuckles can be two curves, whatever you want. The heel doesn't have to be straight. None of it has to be straight. But the one straight line that you'll see on most knives is right around the guard slash back of the bolster, whatever, that area. That's a vertical line that you'll see in a ton of knife designs right i like to break that up um that's one of the things that i i loved the most about rodrigo sfredo's keyhole handle technique when i first saw it it was just mind-blowing that 
okay, here's a bolster and or a guard or whatever fitting you're going to have here, but it interfaces with the handle block in, in a much less linear fashion. You know, it can be a swoop, a curve, a keyhole shape, whatever you want that mating surface to be. And now it really opens up the possibilities of flow for any given line in the knife. Right. And that's right. really cool. So you can have, and you can do things like you can adjust the top of the keyhole to be a little bit shorter, or you can have the shape be a little bit more organic than formal just to give a little bit of that like forward flow to a knife, you know, like it's flying or something. Um, and so I, I like that aesthetic. And so going forward, keyholes are cool. I've done them. And uh, there are people that do them better than me. Rodrigo pretty much smashed all of the keyhole ideas out before anyone else even caught up to them. So I don't really have any pretensions of, of like doing anything new in that arena, but I feel like the pantograph maybe can afford some new possibilities in design and execution from you know steel to handle material interface. So maybe inlays that become keyholes or keyholes with inlays in them. Uh, and then, you know, maybe pieces of Damascus inlaid into the handle that echo Damascus from the bolster. Uh, what I'd really like to do is get more into like bespoke mosaic patterns that also the inlays echo the shape and style of, of the Damascus. So a more holistic design overall, not just boom, embellished handle, boom, embellished blade. The two aren't necessarily having a conversation with each other. Right. But to more organically have the wood, if, if we're talking about wood for a handle, and the metal f flow together and, and kind of speak to each other, and then also have to have the pattern and the steel speak to the method of embellishment used in the handle. So, and ultimately that might not be just pantograph work. Sure, let's include a little bit of inlay, but maybe we're going to like recess our inlays a little bit and then like... Uh, break the corners of the pockets a little bit so it looks a little bit more like inlay work in leather sheaths. Uh, I think that would be a nice thing to be able to do, and I've, I've been working technically on how to do that in my head. There's just, you know, a few little things to get around. Uh, but then also to be able to, you know, do inlay, inlay or other types of engraving that also flow from the blade into the handle, you know, effortlessly through the keyhole shapes. You'll see stuff like that already in, like, Rodrigo's work where the whole thing is pretty holistic. But I think there's a lot more room for exploring that approach um, because just not a lot of people are doing that yet. I love that you're... I, I can see it. It's a natural progression. I mean, because for, for... As a sculptural object, you know, the interesting thing about knives to me has always been the, the, the lines, but also it's the contrast of handle material versus the steel. That's always been... And the relationship, yeah. and how they how they speak to each other or not speak to each other. And for me, I always like I, I stay away from Damascus because I feel like for my own my own reason is because I feel like I'm not a good enough knife maker personally, and I just like I, I want to just keep going as I'm on the journey. And when it speaks to me, I'm gonna gonna get involved. But I do feel very strongly about the relationship between the 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 the, the blade and the handle. That's why. Like I could, I can if I could dump wood all together and just use G10 and use like colorful palettes and you know do this stuff we're doing right now, the color lab stuff. That's all I want to do because I really I like to have this relationship between. I'm right, making the steel and I'm doing all this and I'm doing all that. And 
if I just slap some wood on it, is that is that enough? You know, I, I do love the fact that you're addressing the relationship between the, the handle and the steel itself. Yeah, I really like that Color Lab stuff you've been doing. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And then the, it's been really, like, very, like, good for my head. Yeah, I, I really like seeing a lot of those kind of teal, aqua, blue color spectrum stuff that you do. It's nice. Oh, that blue is nice. That blue is that blue is nice. I, I, I'm the hard part about G10 is the fact that there aren't as many like you know as many colors as you'd like. So I'm constantly looking for new stuff and and and. But it's always the relationship, as you know, with the pentagraph and you know with the the form the form when we're talking about the keyholes and the the form and stuff like that. It's always the relationships. It's always the relationships with the colors or relationships with the shapes and stuff like that. And, and I think that's the part that makes it the most enjoyable is, is kind of, co- you know, contemplating all that stuff. And a lot of it is this stuff that it just makes a pleasing object, knife, right. design, whatever to look at. And, and in a way that you might not be able to quantify right away if asked about it. Like, you just know that the thing looks right. Yeah. There, the, well, I think, I think it's really... I like I like being able to talk about the work. So it like to me it's like and you, obviously you too too. It, it's but it's like there is some sort of there is it's almost like the flow state of the of the final product. Yeah. You know it's just working it's just working and you know it when you see it. Like yeah. the whole golden proportion thing that uh, the you know like with the Fibonacci sequence and the golden proportion it all is very faint it's 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 really amazing to think about how those things just your eyeball and your brain at a subconscious level get it but you might not ha- you might have a hard time explaining it otherwise yeah for sure and that's that's part of the challenge of of trying to be able to do that work is to be able to i mean it's one thing to be able to just do it and you're lucky if you can to some extent but you know past a certain point i think that you you know it really helps to be able to intellectualize it a little bit um quantify things and one concept that i kind of think about sometimes that i enjoy is the idea of uh what do you want to say like steeping or imbuing uh so like infusing that's the word right there okay okay so if i'm listening to a particular kind of music while i'm making or drawing a certain thing then some of the spirit of of the mind frame that that my mind was in which was influenced by my by that music will then find its way into the work huh that's interesting it infuses it which may or not be may or may not be a concrete thing i tend to think it can be um but just again going back to like flow state if you were in a flow state while you were doing most of the work on a given piece wouldn't it be cool if the fact that that piece was made in a state of advanced flow was readily apparent to a person that had maybe ever never even met the maker. Damn. But it's, it's, it's infused with flow at that point. I yeah. mean, to, to be able to do that repeatably would be amazing. I like the fact, I love the fact that you're making evolutions of your work. Like you can see that's, I think that that's the one thing that a lot of makers don't have the patience for is to make these small adjustments like i knew as soon as i think i think it was a couple years ago where you started doing the the um you were doing the handles with it you were 
doing the G10, the different colored G, no, different colored, uh, I think it was, I think it was canvas micarta, and you were kind of cutting out, like, almost like, a, it looked like a zipper. Oh, like yeah, were, like zipper dovetail, two-tone micarta blocks. Right. I could tell that that was the beginning of something. That was like the, I could tell for you that that was a, the beginning. When you say foot wet, I know what you're saying. What you're saying is, is you're just trying to get good transitions and you're just trying to get, you know, good connections and then work it out. But you can totally tell that this is the beginning of something, you know, new for you. Yeah, that was a fun one too. Uh, Like, I really enjoy the concept of adding value just by work. Yeah. Like to me, work is one of those things that gets undervalued far too much in this world. Um, just what, like, even in a discussion about talent, like, Oh, I could never do that. That person is way more talented than I could ever be at that thing. Why then you're just kind of sidelining the amount of sheer work that they had to put into besides being talented or not to get to That's that right. level. Right. And diminishing, then, uh, diminishing, diminishing the work they put into it. Absolutely, it's you know it's it's a little bit of a, a subtle diss, but as far as um, adding value, like that right there is kind of a demonstration of the value of work, where you could take quite modest materials. I mean, it didn't get much more modest as a handle material from a, an aesthetic standpoint than like you know natural canvas micarta. Right. It's great stuff. Don't get me wrong, but. If I can take black and natural canvas micarta, very plain Jane, and just make them a lot more interesting to look at with a little bit of machining and just, you know, half a day of my time, like, that's a pretty worthwhile thing to have done. I, I, I just enjoy, you know, taking plain materials, adding work, and making them cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, too, because that zipper, that zipper definitely was to me when I looked at it, I remember looking at it when you first were doing it. I was just like, wow, I feel like a lot of the patterns that you like in your Damascus are very similar. Cause there's almost like a Greek key style to some of the Damascus, especially the kind of like the, the, um, the bordering bars. I feel like that there was like a relationship with those kind of like, you know, uh, those, you know, repeating patterns. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be a student of repeating patterns is, of a huge advantage to anyone trying to pattern weld. Um, a lot of these mosaics that I like doing, sometimes I'll, I'll have an idea in my head, but it won't quite fully flesh out. And so maybe I'll just go to Google and I'll, I'll pattern like repeating vector, like or re- geometric repeating vector art, things like that, Moroccan tile. You'll see it in decorative arts from around the world, especially in things like textiles or like the borders of books, yeah, what have you. They're not like high embellishment in that, you know, they're not, they're not these like one-off kind of artistic representations of things, but they are, you know, really engaging decorative treatments that you'll find like egg and dart borders and stuff from the Greek or like you say, Greek key, which I mean, that's, you find that thing from around the world. The, the Persian name for that Damascus is Zanjir Damascus, means huh. chain in Urdu. And uh, I mean, you see that in their gun barrels from 200 years ago. But you'll also find it in in Greek art on the borders of things. I mean, there's kind of a limited range of designs you can come up with. And a lot of cultures have come up with almost the same things. But it's all super good for Damascus work. Because when you're creating a mosaic Damascus, a lot of the time you're creating just a repeating element. And it's easy to do that with square repeating elements, right? 
you, you can turn it into a four-way or maybe even a nine-way or whatever, as long as it's geometric with orthogonal sides. But when you start getting into like hexagonal repeating vectors, then it gets gets pretty interesting. You have to adjust your technique or maybe, you know, invent some techniques um, because there's just not a wealth of information about there in kind of the more advanced mosaic Damascus pattern making world. You know, everyone, everyone and their uncle on YouTube will teach you how to make twist Damascus or raindrop or whatever. But the more kind of rarefied the air gets and the more experimental you're getting, the less, you know, resource material you can find that's been shared out there. A, because people aren't doing it as much, and B, because people tend to actually still be kind of cagey about that stuff. Right. Which I've been trying not to be. I'll just put it out there. That's one of the things that I love about Morocco. Super, you know, original and cool um, Damascus pattern thinking and design, but he'll just share it. And yeah. and uh, and I enjoy that about him. I I try to do the same thing. To me, it's it's uh it's self serving in a way. It it ensures that I don't stagnate because if I do a certain thing and then I teach everyone how to do that thing, well, everyone does that thing, and I better have moved on and be doing a new thing if I want to stay competitive, right? That's a very thoughtful way of thinking of it because that's I agree with you. I think that even. You know, the, the, making Damascus to me is like it's. I, I watched your like back to the you know the 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 Copus videos. You showed your pictures on how you're gonna get the designs, and I don't know how you guys. I mean, I'm dyslexic to to hell. I don't know how you guys, you know, uh, retro retro build. You know, configure these these patterns out at all. I it's like totally like I can't get it. I can't figure any of it out. So like I'm amazed that you're able to do that. But I love the fact that you say that you say that I yeah, you need to be able to if if you gotta hang your head on the one thing you're gonna teach people, you're in trouble. Yeah. Oh definitely. Um and and I see people fall into that trap. I mean there there's guys whose hallmark ten years ago was being able to make nice uh stainless clad sand mai. Car- carbon core stainless clad sand mai. And at a, at a point in time, that was very impressive. I mean, I, I still think it's super cool. It's still a fun thing to do, but there's just a bunch more people that know how to do it now. Yeah. So if that was your bread and butter, well, maybe it's bad news for you these days. I don't know. Um, so you better think of something like, okay, maybe now we're going to ladder that and we're going to like put teeth along the edge or maybe we're going to, you know, use a cool Damascus court. You just got to look for a progression or, or a, a permutation. And for me, it's not just because I want to stay like ahead of the pack or whatever. It's also just because I get bored easily. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, what you do and what Mareko does to me is like, it is like black magic. I, I don't, and Steve Schwarzer and, and, and Aaron Wilburn and, and all those guys, I, it, it to me, it's like, I can't get my head around it at all. Like I can't, I cannot, I can't wrap my head around it. Like I can't understand it. Like I can't. You know what, though? I think you really could. I think that if you and I sat down with a piece of paper and just a cup of coffee or whatever, and and like even a half an hour, I could I could show you in a sensible way how to reverse engineer patterns and kind of like the basics of speaking that language. Well, I would take you up on that. You know, you got to give me another five years because I'm I I don't know necessarily. It's like when my my dad took me on a trip, I did not want to go on it, and I couldn't appreciate the place that I was at because I didn't want to do it. So like, I think I need a little bit more, like I said, I need to keep going on this journey and then 
I'm going to take you up on that when I when the when the time is when the time is right, Salem. I'm going to call you up and I'm going to take you up on that. Any coffee in your shop? Well, yeah, anytime, man. The door's open. I mean, I know it's a big country to get across, but uh, if you ever manage it. Well, I'm going to take you up on that. So, is there anything else that you wanted you you had uh, you had a list of things you wanted to cover? I don't want, I want to make sure that you get out what you want. To, if there's anything <laughs> you want to talk about, well, let's see. Uh, so one thing, I know that we were talking about flow earlier, and yeah. and uh, obviously there's just you could have a whole huge conversation on that. But um, I don't, do you take book recommendations? Like, you know, do you read things? I take book recommendations. I'm not as good a reader as I should be. Well, I think that makes two of us. But okay, uh, hey, if if you want a book, this is a good book to have chilling in your bathroom, you know, to read during your <laughs> okay. contemplative moments on the throne, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. I, I find like philosophy is the best toilet reading. Somehow. Really? Yeah, because you're what a you, backhanded, backhanded compliment for hey, like you know like philosophers. Go ahead. There's, there's almost no more philosophical pursuit than. Dropping a deuce. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So you, you got go. that. You got that flair for words that I don't have right there. That was. I'm perfect. with you, dude. I'm with you. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, let's hear it. So, uh, trying not to try, uh, the art and science of spontaneity. Oh. Try not to try. Okay. Yeah. Google it. It's right there by Edward Slingerland. All right. And he is a professor of philosophy at a uh, university in Vancouver, BC. And uh, wrote this very engaging book, and it's all about. Um, he's coming like he's he's a professor of um, Asian philosophy, I believe first and foremost. So he comes at it from like a Japanese and and Chinese kind of point of view. And I know there's kind of a lot about flow, you know, in in um, Zen Buddhism and philosophy. If you read Alan Watts and stuff, okay. And I like that, but this guy is pretty darn good at. Um, contextualizing it for a modern audience in an engaging way. And he comes at it from the Chinese concept of Wu Wei, which is basically their word for flow. Okay. Like if you can do something in, in Wu Wei, that's, that's how to be perfect at it. I'm not going to be able to explain it off the cuff much better than that, but if, if you do need a recommendation, definitely check that out. It's, it's a really good read. What was the name of it again? Trying Not to Try. Trying by, Not to Try. Yeah, by Edward Slingerland. Love it. Sounds good. Well, I have a question. If, if you have any more things, I have a one, more, one question for you, too. But if you want to bring back something else, feel free. Okay, so uh, real quick. Also, uh, some of the stuff I've been up to teaching, um, obviously making more videos. I got CMA coming up. Um, the other thing is the DeRosier's trajectory knife project i don't know if you have clocked that at all i've seen i've seen i saw a little clip of you saying this is going to a master smith i need to step it up a bit so tell us more about the project right so the derosiers adam and haley had this big shop fire back in 2014 lost like nearly everything as far as their tools and shop was concerned big terrible deal and uh they were uninsured and everyone was aghast and you know a, a bunch of people put money and time together and equipment to donate and help them get back on their feet because no one could really stand the idea of them you know having to not make knives for a while right, right. and so that was that was a pretty uplifting thing to see um and then they they are back on their feet and and have been and are making really cool knives again um 
but kind of the way they are, they couldn't let it be at that. And they had to turn around in their turn, pay it forward and give something to the knife making community. And that's the, the trajectory award. And that is um, like, it's been they and like Haley in particular will make a knife and then auction it off once a year. And the proceeds will go entirely to whoever is selected from the, from the group of um, nominees for the trajectory award. And this would be for, for makers that are nominated, like you would nominate a maker because you feel like maybe not, maybe they're not necessarily like a beginner or, or, um, or someone like that, that you want to, to bankroll, to put a shop together, but more like someone that you feel is already doing really cool work and could maybe use a boost, you know, to have a little money to invest, to get them to that next level, whether it's a machine or classes or whatever. Okay. And, uh, and so we get a, this year, well, like Haley is, you know, they got a growing family over there, and I don't think she was going to be able to do that this year. And I actually won the trajectory in 2019, so I wanted to pay it forward. So I turned around and was like, yo, you want to collaborate this year? You know, take some of the workload off you. I'd be happy to contribute. So she sent me a uh, one of her super cool Damascus patterns, Merovingian, or no, I'm sorry, not Merovingian, Bat Sauce Multibar Chef Blade that she forged out. And then I added uh, mosaic bolsters, and I'm doing kind of an interesting, well, again, like bolster interface, non-linear treatment. And then also pantograph inlays that echo the shape of the bolster transition and actually echo some of the shapes in the Damascus, trying, again, to make it holistic. So kind of an advanced project. Um, like I say, you could collaborate with a master smith. you got to bring your A game. Right. And uh, so I'm excited about that knife. It's been taking me forever because we've been having a, a, a tough winter around here. Everything's breaking and there's tons of snow and I'm not really going to go into all the woes, but we're pulling out of that winter and I'm working on the knife again. So look forward to seeing that more work on that on my Instagram. And uh, I'm going to call for more nominations at some point too. So, so Haley can pick a winner for will that the, benefit. Will that knife be auctioned off or? Yeah, that knife will be auctioned off. Probably do it on on Haley's uh, Instagram. I'll provide a link when the time comes. Okay, great. Yeah, Definitely. That's, that's a, a fun that's project exciting. to be part of. Yeah, that is a really fun project, I'd imagine. All right, I got a question for you. A lot of listeners have been on, are going on Forge and Fire, or have been on Forge and Fire, and I know you're one of the early champions. And I thought to myself. I'm going to ask the master tactician, Salem Straub, what is the key to winning Forge and Fire? There's got to be a key. Okay, so what I found to be successful and what I think would help no matter what is do your homework and, uh, you know, watch a bunch of Forge and Fire. You familiarize yourself with the layout of the shop familiarize yourself with the problems that people have and, you know, typical projects that they give you. I know a lot of people like to do these three-hour forging challenges to try to get themselves ready for the show or, or provide themselves a parallel challenge, but I think as important or more is having a game plan, and that's based on your homework. Do your homework, you know, maybe make a list. However analytical you want to be, figure out what are the curveballs they might throw at you. And just game it out. What would I do with this? What would I do with that? And visualize yourself doing those things in that shop space. You have to have a strong mental game the whole time. And when you're in that studio 
and you got forges cooking you, and you got people yelling at you, and you're dodging cameramen, and it's way too bright, and the forge sucks, and you know, on and on. Um, you just have to you have to keep thinking about that game plan and your strategy, like what's next, what's next, and then also don't overcomplicate what you're trying to do. If you can't make a knife with a guard efficiently and fast, don't make a knife with a guard. You might think that you're going to wow the judges by trying to do it, but what you're really going to do is fall flat, get a poor fit on it, or maybe not finish at all, and then you're going to have to bow out. Simple transitions. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, definitely wow the judges if you think you can do it, but be real with yourself about what you can do. I, that's a good hot tip. That's a good hot tip. I, you know, it's funny because, I mean, I, and just to let you know if you're listening to the podcast, and the other thing is, is if you don't make it happen, you shoot me a DM, no questions asked. I have a day plan. I have a, I've been doing, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've been, I made a day, uh, uh, a day itinerary for a day in New York. And basically you just DM me say, I'm in Connecticut and I had nothing to do for the day. What do you suggest? No questions asked. I don't ask me anything else. I send you a beautiful itinerary of the, of a perfect day in New York. You know, I so, saw that you'd been doing that. That's a really cool, oh, uh, service oh, dude, that you're offering. I've gotten, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to say how many people, but it's shocking. And then a lot of times, like, I'll forget about it and I'll get a DM that'll say like, hey man, I'm in New York. What's going on? And I'm like, hey man, what's going on? And I'm like, they're like, it's all weird. I'm just like, what is this going on? She's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm here and you said you got that thing. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they're like, well, I'm kind of in stanford i'm like oh yeah yeah give me your email and i send them a whole thing but i've probably done it like you know and i don't ask and i don't make a thing and i and because it's just like a lot of these guys they come to new york and they're this their first time in new york and things don't go their way and i just don't want them sitting in the hotel room like i've had some really really great times kind of like giving people like a like a really beautiful day in new york and it's been a very fun experience Hey, it's tough to figure out what to do in New York in one day if you're not from there. I had See, to do that myself. Why? Because you, you were... Well, well, I went back on there and I didn't win like both times, so I, I did have to figure it out one time, but I just went to the Met and I can wander around the Met forever, so... Oh, the Met's perfect. They, they have the, the, one of the great things with the Met is the arms and armory. Yeah, That's like one of the greatest... When I was a kid, because my dad lived not too far from there, we used to go to the Met. And the only thing I wanted to see at the Met was I wanted to see the Arms and Armory, and I liked the Temple of Dendor. Temple of Dendor was this huge rebuild of this temple, this uh, Egyptian temple. Really? And it's, and, it, and it's on the, north, the most northern part of that museum, and then the whole wall facing north is all glass. Is it so still you, there? Oh yeah, yeah. And you, all you do is when you look when you're going in there, it's all bright light and you see Central Park and then the Temple of Dendor is in there. And there used to be parties. I went to a I went to a high-level party at the Temple of Dendor once and that was like that was like slick. That was super cool. You got to go to a party at the Natural History Museum, the History, the Modern the Modern Art Museum, you're in good shape. Uh, that's called making the scene right there. I was making the scene back in the day when I was a young kid. I was a young good-looking kid and the and the, I I got hooked into some hooked into some hairy things and that was one of them so yeah yeah so what else what's next for what's next for my man salem straub what's next uh okay so the cma thing um i'm looking forward to that and uh i'm you know strategizing at this point and kind of 
I'm trying to do a couple more interesting projects before I go so that I can kind of share that as well um, in the curriculum, you know, talk about it. Um, I have right now I have some projects in the works, uh, more pattern welding. Surprise, surprise. Chef knives. Surprise, surprise. I've been working on a, a full size mosaic uh, Copus video series on YouTube, like a sword size one. Uh, it's for a Australian collector. And um, I made up a new mosaic pattern for it. And now <clears throat> I'm using some of that steel to make chef knives as well. And I'm trying to handle treatment. Actually, I was up this morning running the surface grinder a, a bunch and prep for it. A new handle treatment. I hope it works out. If not, I might just waste a blade full of nice, expensive mosaic tiles. But we'll see. You'll you'll kind of know that it's a different handle when you see it pop up on my Instagram if I su- succeed. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And and you you're still you're still working with Abe over at Eating Tools. Yeah, Abe is the best. Um, Abe is good. Abe's a good dude. Yeah, for sure. I mean, not only is he a, like a friendly guy and uh, just a decent dude to talk to, but I mean, they take great pictures over there. Yeah, that's like, the one thing I hear all all these guys tell me. Like, he Abe takes takes great pictures. Yeah, man. Like, I, I I've never really felt like I had the money to send every knife out to get photographed, but if I send them to Abe to sell, I get these amazing photographs just as a perk. He's talk about a murderer's row. He's got a murderer's row in that stable of his. Oh, for sure. It's yeah, insane. The, the best around. I mean, the best of the best. It's it's amazing. Well, I, listen, I, I'm excited for your class. I, I'm excited to to hear more about your class. And hey, guys, there's if you're at the if you want, go down to the center for metal and look at the workshops because uh, Salem's going to be down there. Was it a five day class? Uh, ten days. Ten days. What are you guys going to be working on in ten days? It's two weeks, man. So, like, we'll spend like the first day just in the classroom for sure, and I'll just go over, um, you know, the history of Damascus making, like the families of pattern welding, um, pattern welding design aesthetics, and then uh, like the language of pattern welding. You know, I think you're the, getting a call. I think you're getting a call. I am getting a call. <laughs> right? Somebody um, I mean, that's Pat Quinn telling you, don't tell him everything. Yeah, don't right? tell him everything. But you know, just, just looking at notable work from around the world and identifying cool things and techniques about it and then learning, you know, what we can do to emulate that that stuff ourselves. That that takes a lot of classroom time to kind of go through that because the focus of the class isn't like, hey, you know, come and I'll walk you through making a, a knife in some in like one of 10 patterns that we could do. It's a little bit more about like, let me try to educate you in the possibilities and the, the ways of getting there so that you can create uh, a most, you can invent mosaic Damascus patterns uh, from, from your own perspective. Wow. And then you guys are going to be making, pa- so when you walk out of that class, what do you go to, what do you end up with? Well, it all depends on how complex you go. So you have a given amount of material that's split up between everyone, and it's typically enough for a few good-sized billets, right? Um, it just depends on how complex you want to go with your pattern and how all-in are you going to go into one pattern, or are you going to make you know, maybe two or three bars of less complex patterns? It's kind of up to the student. Like After I've managed to educate everyone, kind of orient, orient them on the subject, then we're going to go into making individual billet plans. 
and uh, and discussing strategy as far as like the remaining time playing out. What are, you know, manage expectations. What are you going to be able to do? How long is it going to take you in this shot per day, like per weld sequence, and kind of game it out. And that's how it worked well that way last year. Everyone walked with at least one really cool piece, and several people walked with a couple really good, really cool pieces. Then like one guy made a couple of really cool pieces and and just started a bunch of you know started stock for like further projects that just ended up rough forged at the end of class. So it's it's not set, but you're going to end up with cool stuff. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn from the best, you got to go down to the Center for Metal Arts. Center for Metal Arts. See, I think it's centerformetalarts.org. Yeah. Go go check out Salem's guy. He's got another class. If you got if you want to learn, this is the way to go. He's going to he's going to give it to you. And I think there's one more in my spring class, my end of March class. There's one more uh, weekend. I think it's the last weekend of March. There's one more slot open if you want to do the friction folder class, which will be a lot of fun too. Salem Straub, ladies and gentlemen, he's one of the best, one of the best. And you're always welcome, for sure. Do what you did and send me a, shoot me a message and say, I want to come back on. You're always well. Open door policy, we say. We always, we just scratch the surface. So, yeah, I feel the same, man. Like we could. We can have like a, it's funny, we can have a real in-depth conversation about like two subjects. You know, I had a bunch more stuff we could have gone over, but I, I really prefer, you know, the in-depth conversation. So so thanks for the, the quality wrap there. And uh, as always, it's an honor. The honor's all mine. All right, guys, we're going to see you next week uh, with Lynn Ray. Lynn Ray's going to be here next week. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.